Welcome to another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, I think we've spoken about this a lot, but one of the defining factors of the COVID crisis and its impact on the economy has been this this idea that economic time has sort of stopped. People weren't going out as much. They weren't shopping as much. They weren't eating. But financial time kept going. So even though businesses aren't getting revenue and income, they still have to pay rent, pay back any loans they might have and pay taxes and things like that. I think you actually wrote about this uh, when we were just getting started with the coronavirus crisis. Yeah, that was kind of like identified as the early theme, which is like, okay, even if we can get through this crisis in a uh, expedient manner, which at least in the U.S. we haven't, you still have this issue of like bills pile up today or next week or the month later. Mm. And without revenue, uh, those bills suddenly become defaults and potentially uh, bankruptcies. Right. That's exactly right. So a lot of the policy responses we've seen so far have been focused on bridging that gap between economic time and financial time, if you want to yeah. call it that. And they've been offering things like tax relief and loan forbearance. But the question, of course, is eventually, you know, people are going to have to pony up the money that they owe. And what happens at that point, especially after they may have endured months um possibly even years of economic weakness, right? And less revenue than they would otherwise have gotten. Yeah. I mean, I think one way to sort of like conceptualize the policy response, at least in the U.S., is that to some extent you have the Federal Reserve having backstopped a fairly significant portion of credit markets and done a number of things that actually caused um, sort of uh, credit issuance to boom, even in the middle of the crisis, so that companies would have enough liquidity And then the other side of the coin, so to speak, would be fiscal policymakers and then the health policymakers uh, trying to sort of get us to that other side so that all these bridge loans that have been taken out can actually be paid for at the other end. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the concern that you hear quite a lot is always that one man's or one person's repayment is another person's income, right? So if you stop the flow of rent, for instance, landlords aren't going to be getting uh, the income that they're expecting to get. I know there's probably not a lot of sympathy for landlords at the moment, but the concern is that that ends up impacting the banking system. It ends up impacting the flow of credit, which feeds back into the economy in a negative way. So today, instead of talking about debt for Barents, we're going to be focusing on something slightly different, and that is the notion of debt forgiveness. So not just mm. telling everyone that they can uh, pay their bills or their debts in a few months' time, but actually writing them off. Right. That is not something that we've ever really uh, done much in this country. There was a lot of uh, talk about it um, after the great financial crisis, after 2009. There really wasn't much. You hear about it with student loans. Uh, You hear about the idea of like, okay, this time we need a wash. But uh, I would say both sort of culturally and politically, we're sort of allergic to this idea of just sort of writing them off. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Okay, without further ado, we're going to get into all of that. We have the perfect guest uh, for this particular topic. We have Michael Hudson. He's the president of the Institution for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, also a professor of economics at the University 
of Missouri, Kansas City. He's also the author of numerous books, including And Forgive Them Their Debts, uh, which is a sort of uh, very long-term history and overview of the tension between creditors and borrowers, a really good book. So the perfect person to give us perspective on what's going on right now and how it compares to thousands and thousands of years ago. Professor Hudson, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's good to be here, Tracy. Thanks for having me. So maybe just to begin, I mean, where do we begin? Um, can you <laughs> sort of give us your top level view of how you view the coronavirus crisis and the impact on the economy in terms of creditors versus borrowers? Like, where does the power actually lie at the moment? And where is the biggest pain threshold? Well, both of you have already uh, in the introduction gone over uh, what the problem is. And I think it's much easier to understand the logic of uh, debt cancellations or write downs if you look at what happens if you leave business as usual. What happens if you leave things the way they are right now? Well, think of restaurants, for instance. Restaurants in New York City have been closed uh, or operating at a minimal basis for six months. They've accrued back rents uh, and taxes. Uh, there's no way that they can reopen and hope to earn the six months rent uh, in the next two or three or maybe four years. Uh, and if they did have to pay the rents that have accrued when there are no uh, revenues at all, then they're going to have to go out of business. And there's talk of 70% of restaurants in New York City going out of business. You could say the same for gyms. You've seen uh, the Metropolitan Opera closed down, uh, Carnegie Hall uh, concert stopping. So you're having an interruption in uh, economic activity. And the main effect of debt, people think of debt as transferring uh, interest and money to the creditors. Uh, but in this case, we're talking about transferring property to creditors. We're talking about landlords or people who bought a house in a mortgage. They've lost their job or they're on a part-time basis and uh, they're in danger of defaulting on the mortgage. And there's uh, a danger of the same kind of decline in homeownership today that you had after uh, 2009 when there were the uh, widespread defaults. So the question is, uh, radical as it seems to write down uh, the debts, it's even more radical to say, well, let's uh, transfer property uh, to creditors. Let's uh, close down uh, business, family businesses that have been there for many decades. Uh, let's uh, completely uh, leave the economy in a closed down position. The reason uh, people have canceled debts over the time is to restore economic normalcy. And this has been going on for over uh, 3,000 years, 5,000 years. Uh, my book, uh, what is much in the uh, news right now are acts of God mm. uh, by insurance companies. Uh, uh, you can look at the virus as being a kind of act of God. What do you do when something happens from outside the economy? It's not uh, the fault of the uh, income earner. It's not the fault of the restaurant. It's not the fault of the uh, homeowner who's lost a job. It it's just happens from outside the economy. Well, for thousands of years, not only in Babylonia, but in, in Rome, uh, when there was a problem, uh, a disease, a flood, or a drought, uh, the ruler would say, okay, the taxes don't have to be paid. And in fact, the debts don't have to be paid. Most debts in the past were tax debts. 
And if they're not paid, the, the problems are really taxes. And here in New York, uh, that's especially uh, important. Uh, the transport system has been uh, almost empty for six months. It's run up a debt of $4 billion. The city has run up a debt uh, of about $6 billion. Uh, what is going to happen? Uh, the mayor has talked about drastically closing city services, laying off municipal labor, raising the transport fares on uh, the subway. Obviously, there's going to be a break in the chain of payments. How do you avoid that? Well, there are a number of ways of avoiding that. One would be for uh, the Federal Reserve to simply create the credit to sustain the system for people who can't pay, to transfer income to the restaurants enough to pay the costs of operation, the, the rents and the uh, labor costs, to pay uh, Carnegie Hall and the Metropolitan Opera enough not to go under. The other way is to simply write down the debts, because if you, if you don't write down the state and local and public debt in this case, you're going to have a slash of uh, government uh, services. And the government has said, well, what can we sell off? We're going to have to begin to sell off public enterprises like Chicago sold off the parking meters in the streets. We're going to have to uh, sell off parks. Uh, uh, we're going to, have to turn roads into toll roads. You, you can see the problems that are going to occur. You have to look at it as an overall system. And if you don't write down the debts, or if you don't uh, provide the money, uh, just print the money to let the economy tread water, what you call time out of time, uh, then you're going to have a drastic uh, change and shrinkage of uh, the overall economy and will end up looking like Greece uh, did a few years ago. So what is an example in uh, history? I mean, you mentioned you, you do a lot of work with uh, history and you mentioned this idea of debt forgiveness going back 5,000 years. What's a, what's a sort of relevant period we might look to, a specific example where a disease came or some act of God happened and the solution was uh, right off the debt? Well, the laws of Hammurabi uh, that uh, were announced around 1750 B.C. are an example. That's the first uh, uh, set of laws that explicitly refer to an act of God. In this case, Adad, the storm god. Uh, Hammurabi says uh, that if the storm god Adad floods the fields or cancels the debts, uh, floods the fields or causes a drought, then the taxes don't have to be paid and the debts don't have to be paid. Uh, in another uh, part of the, the laws of Hammurabi, he said if there's a disease and uh, the disease prevents people from operating in normal activity, then the debts that they owe are canceled. Now, the reason he did that was if he did not cancel those debts of the cultivators, and we're talking about an agricultural uh, economy, low surplus economy, then you would have the debtors fall into bondage to the uh, creditors, just like uh, uh, you have in the Bible, a uh, debt bondage, when you can't pay the debts. And if a debtor ended up uh, owing his labor, time to the creditor, then he wouldn't have the opportunity to work on corvée labor, that is public labor, to build the castle, the walls, to dig the irrigation ditches. He wouldn't be able to serve in the army. And if he owed the crops to the creditor, uh, and we're talking about uh, 33 and a third percent uh, interest for crop, crop loans, 
then he wouldn't be able to uh, pay the taxes. So the uh, Hammurabi would have, uh, the palace economy would have not only collapsed, but you would have had the uh, a wealthy creditor class emerging from the uh, palace bureaucracy, the local local uh, leaders. And uh, the first thing they would have done once they got power was to overthrow uh, the king, as they did in Byzantium, uh, powerful enough to overthrow the king and take and uh, prevent uh, the king from having the power to tax them. And the whole economy would have turned uh, into an oligarchy instead of a steady state system. Now, the idea behind Hammurabi uh, was taken over from the Sumerians. Uh, and their word for these debt cancellations, think of it as a clean slate. Everything goes back to the way things were before the crisis. And the word for clean slate in uh, Sumerian was amargi, from ama, the mother. It was the mother condition, meaning it's the original condition. The whole idea is how do you come out of a crisis, whether it's a doubt, drought or a disease, and end up in the kind of way you were before, which you assume to be rough balance. People produce enough to live and pay their taxes and get by and uh, conduct normal activity. How do you restore the ability of life to get back to normal? Uh, so that uh, the equivalent would be in modern days, how do you let restaurants reopen without having to say, well, we're just going to go out of business rather than pay uh, all the money that we owe that uh, we end up working for the landlords and, uh, uh, and for the creditors or the city? How do you re uh, enable uh, the cities to start their transportation system again at, at rates that people can afford to pay on the subway or the other transportation? How do you uh, prevent uh, the economy from being permanently wounded? And again, the only way to do it is to write down, uh, or say the debts don't have to be paid. Somebody has to uh, suffer because as uh, Tracy pointed out, uh, one person's debt is another person's claim. And uh, if you don't pay the debt, then some uh, saver or creditor is not going to be paid. And in this case, it would be uh, either the landlords are not paid or in special conditions where small small landlords, uh, they'd, they'd lose the property. In some way, the banks and the creditors are, obli are obliged to, to take the loss because they're rich enough to take the loss without disrupting society. If you have the debtors absorb the loss, society's disrupted and torn apart and the, uh, the tax system's torn apart. If the creditors lose, well, they're not quite as rich as they used to be, but they still get by. That's why Hammurabi did not cancel the business debts. Debts of merchants, debts that were denominated in silver for trade, none of the uh, silver uh, business debts were canceled. Only the, uh, the personal debts, uh, mainly of cultivators on the land, were canceled. Same thing in Rome. When uh, uh, Emperor Hadrian canceled the debts, uh, Rome had been uh, engaged in uh, fighting with the North, uh, with the Germans, he canceled the debts so that uh, you wouldn't have the army falling into bondage uh, to creditors so it couldn't fight in the army anymore and uh, uh, defend Rome. Fifty years later, uh, Marcus Aurelius did the same thing for the same reason. So almost every economy has, in the past has uh, come to the point where it says, well, it's easier to make the creditors absorb the loss than to have the rest of the economy fall into bondage and uh, transfer property to uh, endow a uh, creditor uh, class that forecloses, and uh, we end up in an economy with a very different shape. Do you really want the economy to change its shape that way? 
So I, I think there's a general sense out there that debt forgiveness or debt jubilees are a really uh, leftist policy. And I mean, you just gave us all these great historical examples. Hammurabi wasn't exactly a, a liberal, right? He set out some pretty tough punishments for for crime, for I think theft. Some thefts were punishable by death. You laid out a really good rational economic reason why he would be interested in debt forgiveness, but I'm curious why that rationale doesn't seem to resonate in modern day times, especially in the U.S., as Joe kind of mentioned in the intro. Whenever you talk about debt forgiveness in the States, even if it's something like student loans, you seem to get this knee-jerk reaction from people who say, well, you know, I paid my student loans. Why do you get a free ride? And it feels like once the system is in motion, it's very hard to change it. Why do you think the attitudes are so different now to, I guess, uh, what they were in, in ancient Samaria? I think because of unfamiliarity uh, with uh, with history and the fact that you meant that uh, the left in America doesn't discuss uh, debt or finance. Uh, I, I don't think I've had any discussions about uh finance or debt forgiveness uh, uh, or even monetary policy with the left at all. Uh, I've talked to Federal Reserve uh, branches. I talked to Wall Street people. I talked to financial people. I talked to uh, Republican politicians. Nobody on the left has uh, been interested in this. And in fact, uh, uh, in China, where I was a professor uh, for the last few years in Beijing, at Peking University. I went over a few years ago along with David Harvey, a colleague of mine from CUNY here in New York, and uh, we didn't find any discussion in China about what are you going to do about the Chinese housing boom that's come up uh, with uh, all of the uh, people b borrowing to buy uh, real estate on credit. And uh, because everything has to be couched in terms of uh, Marx's capital there, because they say they're a Marxist state, David Harvey said, well, you, you know, Marx wrote more than volume one of Capital, which is all about labor and uh, uh, employ employees working for their employers. Uh, there are volumes two and three in Capital. Volume three, Marx talks about how debt grows by its own ma purely mathematical laws, which have nothing to do with uh, the uh, economic rate of growth. Uh, the financial system is r wrapped around uh, the economy as a whole, and really is independent from capitalism. It existed long before capitalism, uh, and probably, and it obviously is existing after capitalism uh, in China. They did not seem very interested in uh, this line of approach at all. In fact, we could see that it made them uh, feel very uncomfortable to talk about debt. So I think the people who are realizing that something has to be done about debt are mainly financial. They're mainly in Wall Street. For years, I worked with Chase Manhattan uh, as our balance of payments economist. And it was uh, the banks that saw, well, wait a minute, how much can a third world country afford to pay? How much can uh, such and such an industry afford to pay? The banks know that many sectors can't pay. The rest of the economy isn't looking at this because there's an assumption, like you said, uh, that the assumption is that anybody can pay if they just cut back on their spending enough. But that's not the case. Uh, you mentioned student loans, and certainly many people think, well, I really scrape by to pay my student loan. Why would other student loans be forgiven? Well, the answer is simple. If you were able to scrape by and pay your student loan, good for you. You were able to survive. Most of the people who don't pay their student loans 
are not paying because they're going to the movies or they're gambling or they're consuming more. They're paying because they really don't have the money to do what you did, to, to scrape and pay, uh, especially uh, minorities who've gone to junk colleges, uh, the sort of private uh, colleges that say they're going to get them a job in manual labor or some kind of uh, technology that really doesn't work. There are many people stuck with loans that uh, they're unable to pay. And if they do pay it, suppose that uh, all the people with student loans now actually have to pay the student loans. If they Then uh, they're not going to have enough money to take out a mortgage to buy a, a home of their own uh, and form a family. Uh, they're going to have to live with their parents. Uh, if they get married, what, are, are the children going to move in with uh, the, the wife and kids going to move in with the parents? The uh, Having to pay the student loan crowds out the ability to take out a mortgage loan, uh, to take out other loans you need. And then, of course, you have the medical uh, uh, debt that is uh, probably the main source of bankruptcy for uh, many, many people. Uh, you get sick, you go into the hospital, or even if you get tested, you're, you're broke. And if the Federal Reserve is correct when it said that half the Americans cannot raise $400 in an emergency, and uh, it costs uh, that much just to have a COVID test, uh, and it costs maybe $2,000 or more if you go in uh, just to go uh, be admitted to a hospital. You can imagine the devastation that this causes to people that uh, it, uh, not paying a debt right. is not a matter of choice. It's a matter of the money isn't there. Michael, I want to go back to something you said, which is just that, you know, you could look at the current situation in which all these different entities whether it's restaurants, whether it's museums, whether it's the New York City Transit Authority, um, they all owe a lot of money. And there are sort of two different paths we could take. We could cancel all the debt or, uh, or some level of it, cancel debt, or you have uh, the government print a lot of money and um, sort of allow people, just give it to people to make them whole. And you also said that going sort of back to the ancient times that um, – a lot of the debt that was, in fact, canceled was tax debt. So public uh, debt, essentially that the cost of the debt cancellation would essentially be on the public sector balance sheet. And so I'm curious whether functionally speaking, you know, talking about debt cancellation in terms of ripping it up sounds pretty radical. Talking about massive fiscal aid um, so that all these different entities could pay their bills during the crisis sounds a little less radical. But I'm curious if functionally they're kind of the same thing, this idea that what um, sort of in the ancient days was putting the, uh, you know, having the public balance sheet be the bearer of the losses is more translatable to aggressive fiscal expansion as opposed to pure debt ripping up per se. That happens very well. Uh, China uh, is able to cope with this quite well because its uh, uh, monetary policy, its central bank is part of the government. Uh, there are many companies in China for the last 10 years or longer that uh, have not been able to pay the debt. What do you do when an a, a industrial company uh, can't pay the debt? Well, in, uh, in the West, if a company can't pay a debt, it goes bankrupt and it's sold to the highest bidder and it could be a foreign uh, buyer and uh, it closes down and uh, the workers are unemployed. But uh, what uh, the Bank of China does, the government simply keeps cr creating the credit and uh, uh, lending uh, the bank uh, the money, that, uh, the uh, corporation uh, that's the debtor the money. Now, here, that company would be called a zombie 
corporation. But uh, China will just keep lending it the money. And then uh, because it creates the money, it'll write it, write it off. It's easy to cancel the debts when the debts you're canceling are owed to yourself. Hammurabi could cancel the debts because most of the debts ultimately were owed to the palace. He didn't have to deal with a, a independent uh, financial class that said, wait a minute, we're going to lose if you cancel the debts. We're going to overthrow you if you try to do that. He was canceling debts to themselves. The Roman emperors were canceling debts owed to themselves, not to the uh, wealthy uh, Romans. Now, uh, and China is canceling, uh, well, because China's uh, government provides the credit, it premises that uh, finance and banking should be a public utility. It should not be privatized. And the advantage of having uh, banking as a public utility, or like operating the Federal Reserve here as a public utility, is you can create the money, you can uh, lend to keep uh, a restaurant afloat, or a museum afloat, or a city uh, and state afloat, and then you can simply wipe out uh, uh, the debt. And uh, you're only canceling the debt to yourself. You're not threatening to take it away from any banker or bondholder or a stockholder. So by making finance a public utility, uh, uh, or at least making the credit, uh, emergency credit, a uh, public utility, uh, you create the credit, and then you say, okay, we provided you the credit. And when we provide you credit in a, a shutdown, this is not inflationary. I think Germany is uh, paying its labor 70% of the uh, normal wage income. The Federal Reserve could create enough credit to keep um, most uh, employees who've lost the jobs able to break even. Most restaurants and most uh, renters uh, who are unable to do business, they'll owe a debt to the Federal Reserve uh, that will continue to keep them afloat. And then when the crisis is over and the vaccine is in and life goes back to normal, the Fed will say, okay, we provided the credit, now we can just wipe it out and life can go back to normal. The idea is to restore the status quo on ante. The idea is to make uh, the economy as workable as it was before the crisis. Since we were touching on um, fiscal stimulus as, as one way to keeping the economy afloat and making sure that there are jobs available for people. I'm, I'm, Joe is going to make fun of me for doing this, but I'm just going to go out, go ahead and ask you, what do you think about MMT, modern monetary theory? It, it feels like it's maybe uh, one version of what you're saying. And I know, um, I guess you would have worked with Stephanie Kelton uh, when she was at the, uh, the University of Missouri, Kansas City with you. What do you think about that policy and how much difference or daylight is there between MMT and its policy recommendations and the kind of debt forgiveness that you are discussing and advocating? Well, I was one of the developers of MMT uh, uh, in the uh, late 1970s. Uh, and Stephanie was uh, our department chairman there. We were all brought to Kansas City together uh, in order to uh, popularize MMT. And uh, Stephanie and I have gone around uh, the world together uh, giving lectures on it. She usually uh, gives the introductory lecture about how uh, running a, a deficit uh, pumps money into the economy. And then I follow up with the second, and the economy needs to be pumped up or else 
we'll have austerity. And then I give the lecture to say, well, the economy is really two sectors. There's the financial sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, the property sector on the one hand, and then there's the production and consumption sector on the other. Now, most MMT people talk about uh, the government printing money into the regular economy of uh, production and consumption, uh, people who work and produce things. But uh, you've just seen uh, the main practitioner of MMT, of course, is Donald Trump. And uh, he just did uh, the enormous uh, $10 trillion, uh, MMT example, but he didn't put, he only put $2 trillion of that into the economy. The rest of the money uh, went into the stock market and the bond market. So the question is, who are you going to run MMT for? Are you going to run it uh, in, just in order to pump up the uh, stock and bond prices and real estate prices and uh, to keep the debt system in place? Or are you going to pump it into the economy and let the economy survive? Something has to give. Uh, either, the, uh, either the economy loses or the financial sector loses. And uh, that really is uh, the debate on MMT. Uh, Mr. Trump didn't call what he was doing MMT, but it's exactly what MMT is, creating uh, the government, just simply creating uh, the credit. That's what quantitative easing is. Uh, that was all MMT, but it was MMT going into the stock market. And most of us at Kansas City are trying to uh, create prosperity for the economy as a whole, for labor and industry and agriculture, not simply uh, high asset prices. So something you brought up and you, uh, I thought it was interesting the way you framed it in comparison with China and then what you identified right there. You know, thinking about MMT as a political project or thinking about your own work, of course, as a political project, how much can you identify it as essentially what you said of no longer having the financial sector be this sort of third entity out there. You have the sort of productive capacity of the economy. You have the government. And in China, as you described it, the sort of there isn't much daylight between the financial sector and the government, whereas in the U.S., the financial sector is its own distinct set of private interests that's distinct from the government and distinct from actual productive capacity. And so how much is, in your view, the solution essentially collapsing the fin financial sector so that it's just it can no longer represent its own interests distinct from everything else? Well, what are its interests? Uh, I think you can say that a lot of the problems that America has uh, uh, been in slowing down for the last uh, 10 years, really slowing down since 2009, has been financialization. And uh, the problem is that the financial sector uh, doesn't create credit for the reasons that MMT would. The financial sector creates credit against assets, against collateral. 80% of bank loans are for real estate. And so as uh, the credit standards have been loosened for real estate, banks will lend more and more and more uh, money against any given uh, uh, piece of, of real estate. And the effect of financialization has been to uh, increase, to inflate uh, real estate prices. The banks will lend money against stocks and bonds, and uh, they'll lend money to uh, finance corporate takeovers. And they also lend money, of course, for education. And just as uh, a house is worth whatever a bank will lend against it uh, for the new buyer, an education is going to be worth whatever a bank is going to uh, lend to uh, a student to buy an education. And as banks have uh, made loans with government guarantees with no risk, They've made loans without taking into account the ability to pay. 
when I went into Wall Street 60 years ago, uh, the first question any banker uh, would ask is, can the borrower pay? Well, right now, that's not asked anymore. Now that the Fed FHA is guaranteeing uh, mortgages and the student loan uh, are, are guaranteed, banks don't have to worry about repayment. So they're just uh, creating as much credit as they can without reference to the ability to pay. The government isn't looking at the ability to pay. The FHA now lets uh, mortgages be uh, extended up to the point where they absorb 43% of the borrower's income to pay the mortgage. Uh, that'll be guaranteed. Well, imagine if the government, if you're paying 43% of your income to pay your mortgage, you're paying taxes of maybe uh, 10 or 20%. You're paying uh, uh, health insurance. You're paying FI, your social security withholding. There's been less and less and less income available to spend on goods and services because more and more American income is being used to pay the financial sector and its associated real estate and uh, insurance sector. So as more money is paid to the financial sector, as debts grow, same thing for corporations. As corporations have to pay more money to the uh, uh, bondholders uh, and uh, dividends uh, and the banks, there's less and less for new capital investment and the economy's shrinking, largely because there's been a diversion of income away from the, the real economy, the production and consumption economy, to the financial sector. So the financial sector in the United States, let's face it, has become dysfunctional. And uh, I think almost every uh, financial manager uh, that I know realizes that the sector has become dysfunctional. And they're saying, this is a hell of a way to make a living. Uh, I'm going to play by the rules of the game, but I, I would be nice if the rules of the game were for me to be uh, a banker and I was actually helping the economy grow instead of just diverting income from the economy into the banking system. So somehow the, the financial system has to be restructured so it can cope with a coronavirus trauma or act of God like we're having now and uh, be able to restore normalcy. And I think the only way to do it uh, would be, uh, I mean, China has uh, shown the most successful way of, of doing it. There was hardly any uh, interruption of activity there. There's a very quick recovery. And it's because of the way that China has structured its financial sector uh, under public uh, direction, instead of leaving it uh, to individual banks to foreclose, take over real estate, grab factories, and uh, uh, create, uh, make the economy look like Greece. Um, I have a related question, but I think when, when most people think about MMT and uh, policy prescriptions, they think about things like a jobs guarantee or maybe a, a Green New Deal. But you just mentioned this idea of Trump uh, as an MMT or himself spending lots of money, but maybe spending it in the wrong way. How useful is an economic theory that can lead to such different policy outcomes? The important uh, thing about MMT is you realize that uh, money doesn't, governments don't have to borrow to spend money. Governments can create the money. Uh, they don't have to borrow from a bank uh, or a bondholder to lend out. Uh, they can, uh, the effect of borrowing from a bondholder uh, and, and creating money is identical. Uh, if a central bank will print the money to spend into the economy, it's no more inflationary than borrowing from a bondholder because the bondholder uh, do what a bank does, uh, uh, simply take decide, okay, I'm not going to spend money on other financial assets. A bondholder is not going to cut back 
consumption spending in order to uh, lend money uh, to the government. Stephanie and MMT's point is that uh, government money creation is no more inflationary than borrowing, and you don't have to borrow and pay interest to an in, uh, independent financial sector where you're limited to what bondholders will let you do. Uh, you can simply print the money, and by printing it, you, you save the amount of taxes that have to go to paying interest. You would save uh, uh, the amount of taxes that have to go to amortize and pay down the debt. Uh, uh, certainly for states and local uh, governments here, it would be the probably the only way the states and local governments can avoid drastic downsizing is uh, uh, government lending to them not uh, going to private bondholders. Because in New York, uh, if New York State borrows from private bondholders, the bondholders will say, well, you'll have to balance the budget by selling off property or by cutting back public services, less transportation. And uh, with less transportation, people are just going to begin moving out of, uh, out of New York. Uh, it'll become not as livable as it used to be. So uh, that, that's the main thing that uh, MMT says, that there are two ways of creating, uh, of financing governments, printing it, borrowing, and the effect on inflation is identical. I want to ask you, uh, I want to go back to uh, the situation in China again real quickly. We actually, uh, several months ago, we actually talked to our Bloomberg uh, one of our economists here at Bloomberg, Tom Orlick, who has a new book, uh, China, the Bubble That Never Pops. And we talked about some of this, which is that due to the structure of finance in China, um, that all of this sort of, oh, the debt ex- bubble is about to explode fears. They're misguided. They're, it's sort of based on a misunderstanding. Nonetheless, I'm curious what you see as the costs of a system like th- that, because some critics would look at it and say, OK, yes, you can certainly keep companies alive and definitely but what about corruption? What about uh, productivity? What about the sort of what in the West we might say is, well, what about the disciplining uh, effect of the market by having uh, by not allowing you know, companies to roll over their debts uh, indefinitely? Do you see costs associated with the Chinese system whereby, OK, uh, debts and bankruptcies aren't as much of an issue necessarily or systemic, but what are but in terms of um, you know, keeping all these companies alive with uh, sort of ongoing access to credit? Well, I think the recent week's newspapers have shown there's just as much corruption in the United States uh, financial system uh, as there is in China. I mean, look at uh, uh, Deutsche Bank and look at all the banks that have been uh, uh, involved. Uh, there, uh, Ten years ago, corruption was a very serious problem in China. And uh, uh, when I'd lecture there to students, there was you could see the idealism. I, I hadn't seen it in any other country. An, an idea that they can really they'll graduate, they'll go into government, and they're going to clean up uh, corruption. Uh, and really, uh, they felt it was their country, and they had a chance of actually shaping the economy because it was something entirely new. Well, the problem ten years later that we can see is that cleaning up corruption does entail a lot of government oversight into the economy and. Uh, some uh, the cost of cleaning up corruption is a, a very heavily regulated uh, economy. They're trying to get rid of uh, corruption now, and that's uh, they're uh, from what I what I'm told by uh, uh, Chinese uh, businessmen, it uh, seems to be working uh, quite well, certainly compared to what it was before. But getting back to the other question, uh, what is the cost? Begin by what is the benefit? The benefit is. When uh, there's an economic downturn, like the coronavirus, the company did not go out of business 
lay off its uh, employees and be sold to foreign buyers. It was a, the economy was able to maintain stability. So uh, the cost really is uh, money is cost free if the government uh, creates it. Borrowing is not cost free, but money creating is cost free as long as it's not inflationary. And uh, China does not uh, create money in an inflationary way. It creates money simply to stabilize uh, employment in, in a way that uh, has not caused uh, any more inflation there than it would here. If New York uh, City and New York State uh, received money creation to just uh, continue op continue operation, that wouldn't inflate prices at all. In fact, what we're in now is debt deflation. If we don't write down the debts, then the debt service is going to cause a uh, deflation of prices. That's the real problem today, not inflation, but deflation is people can, can't afford to buy goods and services and have to cut back their family budgets and buy less and less to empl uh, employ fewer and fewer uh, people producing and selling uh, goods and services, fewer restaurants and business and, and so on. So if if you look ahead to the future and, you know, if you recognize that there may be some desirable aspects of a Chinese style um, command economy, as you're describing, or at least one where the government has a little bit more influence over uh, the financial industry, do you see the U.S. becoming more like the Chinese system or Alternatively, do you see China becoming more like the U.S. system uh, because of global competition? I'd be curious to get your views. If you had to choose. China, China certainly is not going to privatize banking. It is absolutely drawing the line. It is not going to let banking be private uh, because uh, credit is uh, the main public utility. Uh, uh, an economy is basically planned through its credit system. Who is going to supply the credit? You, uh, America is turning into a centrally planned economy, not planned by Washington, but planned by Wall Street, just like uh, uh, European countries are planned by uh, their financial sector. And uh, the problem is who's going to do the planning and what is their planning going to be for? Is it going to be to make the economy grow or is it going to get rich off the economy by shrinking the economy? Uh, that uh, is the whole question. I don't see the United States uh, getting more like China, despite uh, MMT being used uh, modestly. I, I see the United States getting more like Greece uh, and England. Austerity, uh, more and more austerity, a slow crash, a slow debt deflation. And uh, that's what I've outlined in my book, Killing the Host. I described debt deflation, which was discussed in the 1930s uh, when it was actually happening. And uh, when people had uh, to pay their debts and uh, couldn't afford to buy goods and services, what happened in the Great Depression is happening to get again today, but it's happening in slow motion. It's interesting, uh, the Greece comparison, because I remember the Greece comparisons uh, like in 2011 and people would say, oh, the U.S. has all this national debt. We're becoming like Greece, but you're using it in a different way. Not that uh, we're piling on all this debt, but that we're unwilling to spend and going into this sort of forced austerity mode. And of course, we might see it here in New York City without further aid. I want to uh, ask you a bigger question. You know, on episode after episode, interview after interview that Tracy and I do uh, on this podcast, this sort of idea that like we've had this like 40 year run in a way of the existing model seems to come up and it comes up when we talk to economists. Uh, we, with, uh, we recently talked to Paul McCulley. A few others, this idea that really over the last 40 years, we've crystallized this idea of 
the sort of financialized asset driven economy. And I'm curious whether you um, sort of see the same thing as roughly 40 years ago, either some turning point or some great acceleration towards now. And I'm curious also, it's like, is coronavirus, is this crisis a turning point for that? Or is it just, in your view, just going to sort of keep accelerating on the existing trajectory? Well, 1980 certainly was a turning point. Uh, You had Margaret Thatcher in England and Ronald Reagan in the United States. Uh, The whole tax system uh, was shifted uh, to favor real estate uh, and uh, the financial system, not uh, the real economy. And then you had uh, the shift of American corporate employment to low-wage countries in Asia. So, yes, 1980 was the turning point. And all of the trends made uh, from World War II uh, to 1980, for uh, more and more prosperity for labor, uh, were suddenly reversed. In retrospect, the 1970s looked like a golden age now. But since 1980, real wages haven't really gone up very much. Debt has gone way, way up. So you've had a debt-driven economy, debt-leveraged economy. You had the corporate takeover uh, and corporate rating movement begin in the 1980s. Uh, you had uh, the, as interest rates came down, from uh, my former boss that chased Paul Volcker's uh, 20% in 1980, you've had, you had the greatest bond market boom in, in history. Uh, bond prices soared, stock market soared. Uh, you, had, you created huge financial wealth without creating actual industrial and uh, consumer wealth. So you had a shift of uh, the beneficiaries of the system from labor and uh, business to uh, finance, the Wall Street, uh, the real estate sector, and the insurance sector. So the whole economy changed uh, in 1980, and it's changed in a way that uh, has left us now debt-ridden. The economy's run up as much debt as it can. It can't really push up anymore, although the the Federal Reserve can certainly keep pushing up uh, uh, the stock market, but it is not pushing up the economy the way it's going. And so uh, I don't see the economy as recovering. The coronavirus has simply left us idling at a low level, and I don't see any way of getting out of the level as long as we have to pay the debt legacy, uh, the arrears that have all mounted up and are uh, just uh, a burden on uh, families, on businesses, uh, and on states and localities. They they can't carry it, and uh, it's crunch time. And uh, unless you uh, alleviate the debt problem, you're going to be in a slow, new depression. It's always a good podcast when you can go from uh, Hammurabi to Margaret Thatcher, I think. All right. Um, Professor Hudson, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Joe, that was a uh, wide-ranging conversation. It was. And, you know, of course, it did uh, touch on a lot of themes that we've discussed lately. But, A, I liked um, uh, I liked his sort of, obviously, historical perspective. That's a big part of what he's known for. But I thought the, the, uh, the comparisons to the sort of Chinese model were uh, pretty interesting. And it sort of helped me crystallize, like, sort of what are some of the tensions here, perhaps, about going at things in a different way, whether it's through much more um, 
fiscal fiscal authority centralization of credit and spending sort of a sort of useful a useful counterpoint I, I think to how things work out yeah and it actually reminded me quite a bit of the episode we recorded with Victor Schwetz a few months yeah, ago definitely. I think he made similar points about what works in the Chinese model and this idea of the US perhaps moving closer to it there is another thing that I was thinking about which is uh Professor Hudson's point about when something like this happens in the economy, you know, an act of God, as he put it, you know, there's going to be pain. And the policy prescription is basically all about finding who can bear that pain most efficiently or who can bear it with minimum disruption to the economy. Uh, And, you know, as he put it, it's usually the creditors. They have lots of money. uh, They can do this or. They could be backstopped by the government, which has the balance sheet to endure the pain. Yeah, I mean, right, exactly. I mean, it's almost like you could say that initially in the crisis, the sort of March and April consensus was like, oh, nobody should have to uh, endure the pain, right? That this was like a true act of God. It was extraordinary. And we're going to get things back to normal. No one should be permanently put out of work. No one should have to lose their businesses. And we actually did a lot of spending that was on a scale and sort of, I don't want to say generosity, but maybe generosity is the word. It was sort of uh, unparalleled uh, throughout history. I mean, the the fact that unemployment insurance um, uh, was supposed to basically be a complete replacement for the medium worker, the fact that we had no strings attached, almost payroll protection program money for small businesses and so forth. But, you know, we did lose that appetite pretty quickly. And it's like, okay. Even though the fact that public health authorities failed to contain the virus or people's behavior failed to a few months later is like, all right, you're kind of out of luck. Get back to work, find a job, do what you have to do. It's like we didn't that that appetite really did not last very long in this country. Yeah, well, I mean, not just that, but a lot of the forbearance programs that were either passed or the ones that were discussed, like the um, the payroll tax cut. All of those are still predicated on people eventually paying that money back. So, for instance, in the housing market, I think most of the forbearance programs are renewed every three months. So you can kind of see this wall of forbearance maturities coming every three months. And at some point, you get the sense that they're not going to be rolled over and, you know, all of a sudden the bills are going to come due again. And you're probably going to have a rerun of the economic pain that we experienced in March. The other thing to think about is not something we really went into, but, you know, there's a lot of like talk about the future of X, the future of cities, the future of offices, the future of working from home, the future of e-commerce and stuff like that. And, you know, all that's important. But there is a sort of sinister way to think about that, which is because remember, you know, something that uh, Professor Hudson said is like, no, the idea is like to just go back to the previous state. And I I forget the word he cited. um, but it's like, no, the purpose of a uh, forgiveness and a blank slate is just just go back to uh, the pre the pre normal. And if you're sort of preoccupied with thinking about the future of X and how will coronavirus change everything, which there were like tons of articles about for the last six months, it almost like provides a pretext in a way for not doing the clean slate. In other words, it's like, well, we can't just go back to the old normal. and We can't just wipe everything out because everything is going to change post-coronavirus, and maybe some things will change, but you can sort of see how that rhetoric becomes a sort of excuse for not making everyone whole. 
I feel like there's a tension there because on the one hand, someone like Michael Hudson is very clear that the existing system is flawed. But on the other hand, the whole point of the debt relief, as you put it, is that blank slate to go back right. to where we were before. So there's a tension between wanting yeah. to fix the system and using a big moment of change to do so and doing maybe what might be most economically expedient and just going back to the system as it was before. Yeah, no, no easy, no easy uh, answers to resolving that. And that always sort of is the challenge posed to sort of crisis <laughs> policymakers of how do you fix a system and repair a system at the same time? They're kind of it's kind of different at thing. the same time. Yeah. Under immense time pressure as yeah. well. Well, this is why we aren't policymakers. So we just talk about it. Right. All right. Uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>